Hello and welcome to the Baby Giants Investing Podcast. Join us as we chat about the weird and wild world of small cap investing, all while searching for the precious few fast-growing businesses that have a shot at becoming industry giants. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Podcast guests and their clients may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. All right, we're live today. We've got just Andrew and myself, Claude's off, not feeling too well today. So uh, yeah, we'll kick it off. Let's start with some good news. Well, maybe the, the biggest good news, well, there's a few things. I've always got a few up our sleeve, but one of the other ones was just some actual progress with the metaverse. I thought that was kind of cool progressy news. So what was it? You shared it with me, Andrew, actually. So it was a podcast interview that Zuckerberg did where he was like a full 3D kind of photorealistic avatar. Yeah. Do you want to give a bit more color on, on what? Yeah, yeah. So so it's actually a great, I don't know if it's if you should be promoting other podcasts while doing your own, but Lex Friedman. Okay. Lex Friedman, sorry. It's like we're about us. I don't think so. <laughs> if you haven't subscribed, it's a really great one. Lots of stuff on AI, lots of stuff on physics. Just, I, I really like the guy. Really long. Kind of like Joe content. Rogan for nerds. Would you say? Yeah, yeah. I think it's. A, so, I think it's a, actually he's been on Joe Rogan and vice versa. So they're they're definitely. He's a very anyway. You know who I'm talking about. So he, he did a uh, an interview with Zuck, and it was in the in the metaverse. And the thing that struck me, and like you don't have to listen to the whole pod, but just watch the first five minutes or so. Was as you say, photorealistic. Doesn't actually require a lot of bandwidth as well for these things. So they scan themselves. So what's the only difference to what is commercially available? It was from what I understanding is basically could be done entirely commercially today. The only difference was the scanning that they each had done. So they went and got properly fully full body scanned in a, in a lab, which is, I guess, doing the scanning. So they have a full model made of them. They'd like pose and all these different facial expressions, et cetera, so that the device then has a model for that to generate. And it it's looking, like, and, there's, and there's, the cameras are looking on the on the headset are looking down at your facial features yeah. as well. So, they so are, you go into somewhere to be fully scanned, then you go back to that. That's like a one off thing, is my understanding. Then you're just wearing the Quest Three, I think it was that they were wearing. I don't even know if it was the Pro, but anyway, you're just wearing a normal headset. That headset is just like you put on any VR headset, and that's looking at your facial features, just like Apple's Vision's new product, and it's monitoring your face and hand and everything else. But the, as, as Andrew's saying. It's then super low because they've created this, they call it like a codec of your face. They don't, it's actually, he said, claimed lower bandwidth than a video, a video signal because you're not sending the video. You're just sending this small codec version of you, which kind of like has a, has a map of all of your movements and expressions already. So yeah, lower bandwidth than video, but like hyper realistic 3D. So you're sitting in a room. They're both sitting there like very far apart. I don't know where they were. Thousands of miles apart. I don't know. Well, Zach did say I could reach out and choke you or something. And like, <laughs> maybe, maybe that was Lex who said that. I think they felt, no, what was it? They felt like they were so close that they've been like closer than they've choked each other before. And the, the yes. Difference there is that they've done Brazilian Jiu Jitsu together, and you know Zach's training uh, Jiu Jitsu. Okay, okay. <laughs> and you thought it was just some fun other play or something? <laughs> I, yeah, no, I just, I just thought, is that is that what he's doing to his development team, and they're not, you know, performing well? Zach comes in and like virtually chokes you. I don't know. <laughs> um, no, yeah, they'd, they'd rolled Jiu Jitsu. I think was that reference. But yeah, anyway, uh, amazing. I, I think I feel like this yeah, was because the, the thing was when Zach did this demo when Meta. Metaverse, Meta, the company, Meta Platforms, I think they call themselves, did that demo like a year and a half ago, I want to yep. say. The, like It was cartoonish and dumb 
underrated. Just, yeah. But it was just so, it was quite honest because it was kind of like that was a level that it was at there, but they could have so easily just shown this tech off at the time and shown yeah. everything, like made a fake version that was all photorealistic and maybe people would have got it. But anyway, they didn't. They did it like, they didn't do what Apple would have done, which is show like the fully polished version that won't arrive for three years. And so, yeah, I just think that this, if people had seen this originally, they'd be like, oh, wow, this is definitely something I want to get on board with. And the other announcement tied to this was, yeah, Zuckerberg announced or Meta announced the Quest 3. So that's the Quest 2 is their like entry level. Um, I have one. It was like $400 or something. It's very cool VR if you've never used VR before, but I don't use it very much. I think we chatted about it before on the pod. Like it, it's only really for a few games. The the Quest 3 is more like Apple's Vision Pro, but like a entry level version. So it'll do, fa- it'll track your face. It tracks your hands. And there was multiple times where he was taking like swipes at Apple. He's like, and you don't need a battery pack for this. <laughs> you know, like all the things that Apple has. Yeah. But, and it'll be, I think, a lot more affordable. So anyway, I'm, I'm excited about it. I still think that I think that the mixed what both of them are going towards is more like an augmented reality than virtual reality and we talked about this before it's more like both of them are like layering on an, a virtual reality on top of your real world and he talked a lot about that in his demo of the of the Quest 3 is like you're playing a game but you're looking around your normal world and then you see like the aliens firing things at you or whatever and I think that that merging that's what I'm really excited about it's the augmented reality I think that'll be huge basically I kind of see that Excellent. as the next platform I think we do that in the market all the time that some a uh, a company announces a, a bold vision and if they don't instantly deliver to the initial promise, like we, we all, you know, it's all a scam and, and, and we really get very critical on things. And and then I think that comes from a lot of experience because there, this is an industry that is just rife with, with over promises. Nevertheless, sometimes you can kind of miss the, the occasional sort of genuine trend and, mm. and and you've got to recognize too the time scales that we tend to operate under it's sort of like as you say it was like a year ago when they did the demo it's like a year it's a single year right it's like it's a blink of the eye and okay now we're dealing with this kind of stuff all right so what does 2027 look like you know mm. or it, anyway so i i feel as i'm i'm pretty bullish on the technology as well i always think do you'll find that things like scanning yourself in actually doesn't need to be as onerous as it is. Like get a friend to walk around you with yeah, your phone. Yeah, that was what he was saying. In the future, they expect just a phone because your phone has yep. LiDAR on it now and it does some pretty amazing cameras. So in future, it'll just be a phone was the idea, but um, they're not quite there yet. Just push it around and you'll probably, you'll probably get something that's very adequate mm. without the full kind of scan. So anyway, it's, it's, there's a, the, the, the key thing I always think with this kind of technology is it's more, it's more the platform that enables stuff to be built on it. And we touched on this last time with the metaverse and, and VR. It's like, the reason why you, the first time you put on one of these goggles, if you've done it with any of the sort of the more recent headsets, you are blown away, right? It's like, wow, this is incredible. I want to do this. I want to do that. I want to do that. And then you realize actually there's hardly any apps or games available. There's a few really cool ones, but you know the best game in the world will wane on you at, at, a, at a point. And I feel as though once this tech is more widely distributed, there's a chicken and the egg problem. Who has enough headsets? Does, does, does that warrant enough development in terms of the software side of things? But it will feed on itself and it will grow. And I feel as though if, if they're smart about it, that's the way that they'll be approaching it. I think you will want a walled garden because of economic reasons, but you want to walk a fine line here too. If you are too walled and you are dependent, like all of the functionality comes from like one team, even a very big team like Meta's, you're never going to be able to compete with the open platform that is anyone can build on, you know? And anyway, so, but as as a space, I'm interested. It'll be fascinating to see where that goes because I know Apple is obviously going to go very close. They're close for everything, right? 
and they have so much power they might be able to keep it closed it would be interesting to see if meta positions itself as the open alternative kind of like what android did a little though and android's kind of closed too right it's, they're both two big closed ones what they what they did just very quickly though is that it's the play store and itunes right like they they sort of said okay come and deal with it and we we will be the gatekeepers we will moderate everything but they at least allowed the third party mm, developer in, into into at that's least true. their staging area and steve jobs originally didn't want any external apps that was kind of one of his big i would have been a big iPhone. mistake yeah imagine that imagine an iphone without an app store like it's oh. weird to think about now do you remember the samsung i don't think it's still out there the samsung store oh yeah yeah like if you get a phone like it's like what it is the most <laughs> awful bloatware you know it's like, it's like when you buy a smart tv the, the, the apps that come from uh-huh. Toshiba, this is like the worst, you know, like just get out of the way so I can plug my my Apple or Google device into it. Yeah, I was thinking about the open thing because I was thinking about large language models. Imagine if we had the internet had been a closed internet, which was some of the like proposed, yeah. Microsoft was trying to develop a closed internet. If it wasn't for Tim Berners-Lee, we could have had a closed or closed internets instead Different of world. the open internet we have. But I think if you had that, you basically wouldn't have large language models. The whole wave of AI we have now, I mean, probably wouldn't have had a lot of things, but all that data is coming from scraping the open web it's from the fact that everyone made it open and available if you didn't have that that could have been controlled by like one company who might not have decided to invest in like it's just the fact it's just a billions of different minds all trying to do something that creates the incredible power when you have an open platform so yeah i, I hope that i hope that whatever we get with augmented reality is open and uh, yeah i'm very excited for it it, it will even look i, I would uh, I, reason for optimism is even if they don't someone will because the internet itself is open so someone will port devices or white label you know you you will you will have i'm sure an open alternative kind of yeah we don't have an open an open smartphone though you know what i mean like there's still these two monolithic stores and payments that well, if, you, if, you, if you crack them you can like there yeah, are you can there, crack them you can yeah. get devices i mean it's very hard and you have to be fairly technologically savvy but mm. it's the same right right now i can you can use tor and all those you know things i i, I there is a the dark web is much bigger than the the light web and there's actually a huge amount of usage on it it's just not normal to do it because there is a barrier to entry in terms of tech, yeah sort of know-how but yeah. I, but I, but I think it needs to go that way. Open protocols for the win, mm-hmm. <laughs> without segueing into something else. But yeah, it's it's, it's just you can't you can't compete with that. So yeah, I'm bullish. Yep. Very cool. So Zuck has uh, kind of redeemed his reputation a little bit. I think over the last couple of years, he was very hated. I feel like he's a bit less hated now that he started doing MMA and. <laughs> but yeah, speaking of reputations, uh, did you see Michael Lewis has come out kind of defending Sam Bankman-Fried? That was weird. Uh, he's writing a book about him and he's just given an interview where he's saying like the world needs someone like a Sam Bankman-Fried and kind of saying his business would have been fine if it wasn't for a run on the bank. And yeah, it's pretty pretty wild stuff from uh, Michael Lewis, one of the most, I don't know, trusted, you know, profilers, writers about the financial industry, Liars Poker, The Big Short, like a lot of big books where he's kind of been like an independent independent journalist, investigative journalist, I should say. And now he's writing a book about Sam Bankman-Fried, who is allegedly behind one of the greatest frauds of recent history, huge political donations. And yeah, he's come out kind of swinging in his favor. I don't know, maybe he's just, some people commenting, he's just like had a sunk cost thing where he's written this book and now he's like, oh, geez. Maybe he went, I don't know, he just got sucked in by Sam. Like, yeah. yeah, I actually I only saw caught a little snippet on Twitter, and I haven't watched the full interview yet. So, yeah, and I actually, didn't, I actually, when I saw it, I didn't actually clock it was Michael Lewis, so the face I didn't mm-hmm. recognize. So, but it, look, <laughs> it's a it's a bold statement to make. Uh, there, there's something to be said in the sense that those that were operating operating an exchange ethically, legally, there was a license to print money because of 
what was happening in that space. But at the same time, it doesn't excuse what SBF allegedly was doing, rehypothecating funds, you know, issuing their own tokens, manipulating trading, running at every everything from the Bahamas. I mean, it's just like it is, it's not like one or two sort of red flags that we could maybe <laughs> debate over the effort. It's like it's like black and well, allegedly black and white in terms of not just like rampant, rampant, like fraudulent behavior, and then channeling those rivers of money into politics for protection. And it's amazing how far that ran, actually. Mm-hmm. The story was that he was looking to, oh, that's what came out with the Michael Lewis stuff, His, he was looking to pay Trump to not run for re-election and reportedly was talking about a f- paying him $5 billion in order to not run. And I don't know what didn't happen. I don't know what the story was there, but yeah. I'm, I'll, I'll, I think I'll probably be looking forward to reading Michael Lewis's book, though. I think that there's some crazy nuggets. Yeah, in yeah. There. I, uh, everyone's a must read. So, yeah, we'll see what see what happens. But The, the other thing I think just was always important to point out in these situations is that aside from all the intrigue, literally millions of people were wiped out. Like yeah, he, yeah. He took sure. he took the money. Now people were dumb, quote unquote, in speculating in a lot of this stuff. Like you know, you play with fire, you get burned. But at the end of the day, there's a lot of people who are desperate. They're ill informed, and that's what these businesses preyed on. Yeah, and they 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 financially decimated like so many people. And that's that's who I feel sorry for. So like you know, throw him in jail and chuck away the key. I say allegedly, allegedly, allegedly. allegedly. Yeah. Put that all around it. All right, let's get into some other news. Well, I guess the biggest news on the markets was well, maybe we'll dive let's dive into some small cap stuff and then we'll come back with some of the some of the bigger market moving stuff. So last week you chatted to Before Pay, was it? One that we chatted about. Yeah. Before. Yeah. So before pay, we'd actually spoken to them all I think it was at the start of the year. We might have mentioned it on the pod then. And we so talked think- about them before their IPO. So like way back. It was one of our first episodes, actually. Oh, that's right. Before pay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So the idea here is it's like, um, they call it pay on demand and it seems a lot like payday lending. So basically if you want to get your access to your paycheck a bit earlier, you can use them. And it kind of works a bit like afterpay. There's no interest charges. There's no late fees, you know, nothing like that, but you pay a a 5% flat fee, you get your money and you, you pay it back pretty quick. So you're dealing with relatively small amounts. I think the average balance was $350 or so. So this is a good one to, to sort of chat about while Claude's not here. <laughs> and I say that with great love, Claude, because I'm sure you'll, you'll listen to this. Because it does gender a lot of not unfair criticism from an ethical standpoint, because there is they are dealing with what is typically a pretty scummy industry. Uh, so let's put that aside, because I just don't want to, people can form their own. Yeah, I think we chatted about before that basically it's like this argument of, uh, you know, uh, what they're offering is a lot less bad than the alternative. So obviously a lot less bad than a loan shark is going to like break your legs if you don't pay, but also less bad than the the, the legal payday loan industry, which allows kind of this cascading effect of borrowing and then borrowing more to pay off your existing borrowing. One of before pays kind of attributes and others that have that similar model is that they don't have that compounding effect of, you know, borrowing to pay. They only, you have to repay your existing loan before you borrow anything more and the credit limit gets increased, et cetera. So yeah, I guess that's one positive of it and it's an ASX listed company, blah, blah, blah. So I think it gets to that ethical argument, which we don't need to get into of, is it, should you do something that is less bad because it displaces, you know, worse evils versus, you know, ideally it would be great if people didn't need to borrow money and weren't so like pushed close to the the line where it's necessary. But yeah, for some people it is necessary and I guess that's the, the messy world that we live in. So Yeah, and that's it. So you, you form your own opinion, right? Because yeah. there's, there's, no, there's actually no right answer. It's like, well, the answer is whatever you feel 
right with. So I don't mm-hmm. want to put my views on on anyone. So let's just talk about the business. I think one of the things that's been interesting, a couple of things that are interesting from a from the economic side of things is that it is reasonably capital intensive. The more you grow, the more money you'll need to lend out. So you sort of need access to capital to grow, but the capital recycles very quickly because people are borrowing these small amounts for a few weeks. And then when they pay it back, you get to lend it out again. So even if you're if you're lending at reasonably high interest rates, because you can recycle that capital over and over and over again, it's pretty nice. The other thing that's good about it too, and this is perhaps where the if there was a moat, you would find one, is in assessing who is suitable to lend money to. Because there is no late fee. There is no interest charge, right? So someone might just not pay you back and then you lose all the money. So you've got to be very careful to make sure that you're comfortable with lending that person money and that you're properly assessing that over time. So this the way they do that is that they port into your bank account and they've got a bit of machine intelligence that will sort of look through everything and sort of say, yeah, is this person reliable? What amount can we comfortably? So the, the smarter, better that system is, the less provisions you have to make and the less money you kind of lose. So that's really good. And then obviously you build up data sets over time with your existing client base and you can work out who's reliable and who's not and then can afford to lend them larger amounts and stuff as well. So it's all about assessing the 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 credentials of the user. So that was the story. We spoke about that at the time. I thought the reason I thought it was just interesting is that they seem to be like really delivering on that. Like the fundamentals are very much moving in the right direction. They were, they got $21 million in cash. So they're actually pretty well capitalized. The number of users on the platform is growing strongly. The business appears to be scaling strongly. So I think they have a quarter of cash flow positivity on an organic basis. So without doing anything else and, and who knows, uh, they should be viable going forward. And then you've also got the situation where there's probably a little bit of counter-cyclicality in this in, in the sense that if the economy did get a little bit wobbly, perhaps you'd see a bit of an increase in demand for that, offset partially by by people who are who are pushed further into the, the difficult zone and may, may have more trouble paying it back. But there is a bit of a dynamic there to it. So what else to say, man? Other than there's just been like absolute, like so much small cap growth, you know, pre, pre-cash flow positive, just absolutely smashed on the market. So it's sort of interesting from that perspective perspective, if you think that they continue along the trends that they develop, they're delivering on, on the underlying. I don't know. It, it looks interesting. I don't have a position, full disclosure, so I'm not trying to talk my book here or anything. I just, I'm just i just trying to be a little bit more balanced because I think the temptation here is just to put the boot into a company like this where it's 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 got some characteristics that are interesting. Yeah, I think the, the macro one, will, I guess we'll see because as you said, the flip side could be that suddenly it, like default rates go up or people just aren't able to pay back and it is a very thin margin business i guess at the best of times right like they're lending to people who you know have limited ability to pay like the people that can't you know don't have other means to to borrow and that's why they're able to charge 10 percent on a loan so yeah i think that that i think that would be i think it'll be interesting to see what happens during that and i guess we'll find out over the next six months but interesting that it's still doing well in what has been a tightening environment with rising rates and all the things that um, you'd think would be make this business tougher to, to run. So yeah, one one to watch, I guess. Yeah, I, I, a couple of other things that was interesting. There's quite a bit of, you know, it's a new brand new product, right? So there was a very big marketing spend in the income statement when you look at that. I think what was interesting is that it was 5 million, I think, in 2023, but that was down from 20 million in the year before. And so you're actually getting a, a much bigger increase in repeat business and referrals and that kind of thing as, as awareness is spreading. And that's obviously something that can be really nice. We have seen examples of other companies who have sustained some pretty impressive top line growth, but then you think, well, you're buying that, right? It's not, it's not necessarily on an economic basis 
this. So that, that was just an interesting dynamic to sort of uh, call out. So yeah, anyway, go, go have a look. We'll keep keen on what you think. If, if you have any thoughts, let us know. Yeah, hit us up on Twitter, Baby Giants Pod. Speaking of Twitter, we got a question through this week from Ethers Phoenix, which I think you I think he's, this Twitter user is often given some feedback when you talk negatively about certain types of currency you don't like, but we won't get into that because today's question, could the team ever look at a narrow group? Hard to wrap my head around the numbers and the business itself. Cheers. So the ticker is EGG. It's about a 140 odd million market cap company. Have you looked at this one at all, Andrew? Otherwise, I'll give a quick overview of- Not uh, any great detail. I'll let you run with it. So yeah, it's a it's a marketing technology company. I guess is it's a hybrid between two companies, really. So its core business is marketing agencies. So you go, people go to a marketing agency to you know plan their marketing campaign for them. Basically, like you if you ever watched a. Uh, Mad Men, kind of like, kind of like that, I guess, the modern equivalent. So marketing agencies are kind of their bread and butter. That's a cyclical business because obviously when marketing is going well, or when the business, when the economy is going well, people want to spend more on this type of paid brand marketing versus performance marketing or, or other things. And so, yeah, that's, that's one part of the business. There are some attributes, you know, it's fairly capital light, but it is, you know, it's always, it's often hard to say what's a competitive advantage because it's really based on the people that you have. Can you, you know, attract the cool talent to be the, the cool Mad Men people? The other part of the business that I think is interesting, and so, okay, so that part of the business has been struggling. They've made some, laid some people off or, or downsized, I should say. They had some that were, I think, less than full time. So they had some kind of contractors that they, you know, ratcheted that down and kind of having a cut back because a, a lot of their focus also, I should say, is like technology companies. So you think Google, Microsoft, Amazon, et cetera, they help do some of their marketing campaigns, particularly in other countries. And so, yeah, that, that hasn't been going as well. The technology has kind of been the hardest hit in the cycle, or the first one to retrench, I should say. You know, there's been plenty of news about the cutbacks in employees, et cetera, at a lot of big tech. And so that's kind of flowing through to a bit less marketing spending. So that's that's kind of got it facing some headwinds. At the same time, there's this other business that they bought or bought a stake in, I should say, called OB Media. And so OB Media is, it's kind of been in the shadows for a long time, but it's actually kind of come to dominate the company's profits really and what would be the best way to s- describe this it's in the it's in the um, opaque world of online advertising and it's effectively an arbitrage of attention between uh, it's basically funneling attention through to the big search engines portals you know microsoft bing and google and they're kind of getting warm leads i guess you'd say for microsoft and, and google's ad networks and so if you've ever been to a page this isn't actually one of ob media's pages but if you've ever clicked on or search for something you click a link and you see like a black page with like buy a car in sydney or something like all these links that kind of appear in, blo- in blocks you'll know them when you see them because they're like all over the internet these are the kind of things that ob media does it i don't think that's the exact example but anero has given that as an example of like a similar company they have some landing page they get attention traffic from somewhere they have a landing page that filters it to see what ad it would be best served at and then they throw it through to that ad which is part of google and microsoft's ad network and it's a murky world because no one wants to talk about what they're doing because it's it's basically attention trading like they're all buying attention which could be when i say buying attention it could be like it's basically clicks right it's like getting people who maybe they're browsing a website and they need an ad network from there or like in their emails there's all sorts of ways you can get you know little ads and they're a funnel between those two they filter it they see where's the highest value they can sell that attention to and then serve you view the page basically of that click and they get paid by google or microsoft for that and that business had been growing 
explosively fast, and it had come to dominate almost all, in some years all, of a narrow group's profits, despite being you know, originally a much smaller subsidiary where they own just over 50%. And the original founders of Media and the rest. Yeah, so that's it. That's a, it's a, one of the biggest of that type of business. It's a very murky world where you get the sense that Media probably doesn't like talking about what they do because it gives away the secret source. It's kind of like it's all secret source, that business. The more if you talk about what, where you're buying the, the cheap attention, everyone else will start buying it. It won't be cheap anymore. More? Yeah. Any any thoughts on that? Andrew? Yeah. yeah. So I should have. I've never dug into it closely myself. We did speak to Brent Scrimshaw in August. So there, there is <laughs> there is that. You got narrow, a, a narrow, and a half ah, ago. Yeah, yeah, and then okay. I got I've, half a beat later. <laughs> I, I remember I've dug up my notes. Okay. Oh cool. man, there's too many companies to keep track of. Yeah. He was really impressive. Uh, actually, they're they're more traditional advertising business. They're behind some really big name ads like probably the Aldi ads are maybe the better ones mm-hmm. that, that you'd know of and they deal with some really big brands too like huge big global brands I think, I think two-thirds of their money is actually earned overseas as well which is which is interesting so yeah I I came away with the sense that it is very well run uh, actually I, I think management know the industry extremely well it's it's just that it's going to be pretty cyclical it's going to be pretty sensitive I imagine to to market conditions it strikes me as the kind of company that is a really great one to have on a watch list when things get really scary <laughs> because they, they they tend to get hit hard on, on the fundamentals, albeit it's a temporary kind of hit and, and you get the, the multiple squeeze as well, which is a nice setup for, for those that have the patience to come out the other side. But yeah, I can see I can see why people would be interested in it. The history of revenue growth has been really staggering, in fact. And they operate at pretty decent margins. It's just really nice sort of financials that are that are there. So yeah, I, I think it's I think it's an interesting one. Yeah, and I guess the other comment is Obi Media has been. I mean, it's been growing exceptionally fast, kind of you know around 100% a year. Had been delivering a lot of profit, but that kind of came a bit unstuck recently. And basically, in this latest results, it happened. I think in. I think it was June this year, June 2023. So we we had to see kind of the full effect. But effectively, there was a bunch of traffic that Obi Media was buying that they, which has been determined to not be of high enough quality. So when Obi Media buys traffic, the search engines pay them ultimately for the the traffic that comes through. And there's certain types of traffic they don't want. I mean, one obvious example would be bots. So if bots are clicking on on an ad to generate revenue for the the end provider of that ad, that's a fake form of traffic. That's kind of a, a notorious scam that can happen. I'm not saying that's what happened with OB Media, but there was some type of traffic that wasn't up to the quality threshold of, of the search engines. And so they stopped that traffic in June. And so that meant that revenue growth has basically fallen. So they're, they're now saying, you know, OB Media had done net revenue of uh, 60 million USD in 2023. As of the kind of annualizing the July number of this year, it would be down down to 39 million USD. So fairly significant fall of about a third. And they're kind of the way that they framed this scenario is that it's fallen and then it's going to start hopefully growing off this lower base. It does highlight though again the murky world of this traffic. One of their biggest competitors, System One, had had the similar thing happen where they lost a bunch of traffic or got removed from um I think it was Microsoft's platform and then OB Media had benefited from that in the prior financial year and now it's kind of happened to OB. So it's I guess it's a yeah, it's just a murky one. It's hard to know. It's not the. It's not an easy to understand business, and that results in things like this happening, where you know one of their core growth drivers gets gets really punched punched in the face, basically, and you, you don't really have any visibility on it as an outside investor. So I think that's kind of where we're at now. It's got this business that should be very cheap if it 
turns around and starts generating profits again. OB Media has just been hit. I think it's a big question. Is OB Media going to start growing at 50 to 100% again? Is it kind of flattish from here? Was it benefiting from traffic that allowed it to grow that it won't benefit from now? So yeah, a few few questions at this stage. But on the face of it, if it goes back to where it was growing before, it would be very, very cheap. And they're doing a, a buyback at the moment with the cash that they've got. So you just beat me to it, actually. That's, yeah, that, that's, that's definitely the view of the board and, and management that shares are cheap. I was just going to say on the buyback, they've actually bought back a fair number, close to a million in this latest round for a company that has about 92 million odd on, on issue, which is good. And it's interesting to note too, with, you know, in the last few years, they've gone from, well, they nearly quadrupled their revenue. Well, that's always nice, but, but where it's even nicer is when you manage to do that without issuing a bunch of shares and paying for that growth. So their share count has been flat over that entire period. In fact, pretty much as, as, long, as far back as this data set that I've got in front of me is about 10 years or so, which is which is always nice. So yeah, interesting, interesting business. Bit of few question marks there. I gotta tell you, Matt, that's what's kept me away from it. I'm I I I know that I don't know much. And that's that's I, I I'm trying to turn that into a strength in the sense that I I am so far outside of the world of what goes on in this industry and this business to just I kind of put it in the too hard basket. But if you've got any insights into that area, I, yeah. I mean, well, certainly the numbers that seem to be delivering more or less on average over time. So that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, excellent. And was there one other business you chatted to last week? Was that Envision? Uh, yeah, I thought I'd just give a shout out to Envision again. So the Envision's still pre-commercialization. They've got a, a brain scanning device, which kind of does what MRIs do, except much lower fidelity, definitely, but much smaller, much cheaper. And the real low-hanging fruit here is with strokes. Like something like one in four people will have a stroke at some point in their life cycle, which is pretty scary. Um, they're very common and they're, they're horrible things. And the thing you need to know with strokes is that you, you want to det- there's two different broad types and you really want to know which one you've got. So the fact that you can have a device that you can actually mount in an ambulance their generation two device, uh, which is they've nearly got the prototype on, is exciting. So everyone listening to this is probably rolling their eyes at this point, and fairly, you know, understandably too, because how many sort of medical device companies or drug companies do you hear that has a massive addressable market and some promising technology? So you have to you have to understand that it is still very early, very high risk. I guess where it's interesting is that a couple of things for me that make it interesting. One is that no one else seems to be working on this tech. The, 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 they're basically using the same the electromagnetic radiation, which is on par with a mobile phone. So there's not likely to be any sort of issues in terms of they're not they're not they're not slamming your brain with gamma rays. All right, you're not going to turn into the Hulk or something worse as a consequence of that. So it seems like pretty safe. They've got really encouraging results. They've managed to go for ages without being very dilutive at all, which is extraordinary. Speaking of issuing shares, extraordinarily uh, rare. And that's because they've been very fortunate to get lots of uh, funding and concessions and R&D tax breaks and, and all the rest of it. So, you know, they've been about, what, there's 77 odd million shares on issue now. Three years ago, it was 70, then it was 65. So it's very... Very non-dilutive for a company like that. And the other thing that's interesting is that they've they've always been consistent in their messaging and what they're doing, the way they're going to do it, and the milestones that they want to hit. They kind of seem to be like just ticking them off. And if they get through the the 
process and they they think that they can in the next few years it, it could be pretty it could be pretty exciting but as i say i don't own shares this is early stage high risk all of that kind of stuff i would be surprised if they didn't do at least one more big raise on the back of some if they did get some good news which is probably the prudent thing to do but bear that in mind if if you're looking at it but yeah that's i don't know any questions matt no not really whenever i see commercializing i always think of it as like businessing because that's basically what it means it's like we're, <laughs> yeah. we're 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 businessing we're about to start businessing like i i just i hate seeing it basically i i, I don't invest pre-commercialization some people will do For and good sometimes it'll work very well but yeah yeah as we're talking the, odd, about the odds are against you when you do it there's just so much like, that can go wrong before you get to revenue. Yeah, I think it's a, an easy one for me to pass on. But no, I do think interesting tech, and I've, I haven't heard anything bad about that side. So yeah, one to one to watch. I keep oh, the other thing I should the, I should mention as well, which is uh, just a point of interest, is that there's a lot of Nanasonics people involved in this, mm. and they've obviously had very very big success in the, the medical device field, and there's a lot of talent that's sort of come across from that, which is. Which is interesting. Yeah, no, for sure. And that helps a lot. If you are investing in that space, I think those are the things you want to look for is the people and their pedigree to overcome the, the difficulty of, of handicapping uh, the, the kind of the low base rate of success. Should we wrap up talking on uh, some bond yield stuff? As we're right, recording this on Tuesday, markets have been uh, smashed a bit as, as yields rise. What are your thoughts on it, Andrew? I'm sure you've got a few takes on this one. <laughs> I do. I, I, I Well, so I, I read the other day that this has been the worst run for bonds ever. Mm. Like I think it's like in terms of like multi-year periods of, of losses, it's pretty it's pretty substantial. I think it's worth remembering too often, particularly here in Australia, we talk about interest rates, obviously, because they are important to the whole economy, uh, particularly one that's extraordinarily levered to, to, to property. But we, I think the, particularly the man in the street just thinks, oh, it's the Reserve Bank. It's the central bank that, that does it. I would argue, I think pretty forcefully that actually, you no know, bond markets set interest rates. You know, yeah. but technically, if you want to get into the weeds, the mechanism that central banks do is they, they sort of, it's the interbank rates that they lend each other overnight to sort of settle things and make sure their ledgers are all squared. But it's the bond market that ultimately sets interest rates. And for a country like the US, which is easily the largest economy that's sort of out there, they've they've been selling, they, they have been on a structural deficit for a very long time, not even like a little bit, by, by a lot. And traditional buyers of their IOUs are not buying anymore because they weaponized it against the Russians. And that's a whole other debate, but other people such as China have been selling down theirs. And there's, people are a bit more, A, wait a second, do I want to store my value in an entity that could potentially be an enemy down the track? And also, do I want to do it for an entity that has no, is on no path or not even near a path to getting back towards any sort of fiscal discipline? So when, when the natural market demand for the IOUs dry up, well, who, who, who's left to buy it? You've got the buyer of last resort, which is the Fed, which creates money out of thin air. It's called quantitative easing and they buy it. And that just sort of, it, it, it's just mathematically unsustainable. So it's not, not to say that, you know, things are all going to blow up tomorrow, but it's a very, very interesting dynamic. And for the longest time it's been talked about, but it seems as though it's getting to a point now where it's like, hmm, the US interest bill is bigger than their defense bill, just to put put things in context. So a couple of other quick things, and then I'll shut up and hand, hand it over to you. The other thing is we're not immune, obviously, because I think 
you know, a very significant part of Aussie bank funding comes from offshore markets. We're also not immune because the, the RBA can't divert too much from the US because that has impacts on the currency and the currency will have impacts on inflation and that will incentivize the RBA to do things. So it's, it's, it, there's, it's very hard to have a world where we stay really low and US and the big capital markets of the world continue to see increased cost of, of debt. And we're seeing things like, obviously, what central banks do doesn't really have much of an impact on what the Saudis and OPEC and that decide to do. But <laughs> nevertheless, they, that's a pricing impact that we've talked about a lot before, which ripples through the whole economy, huge housing pressures in the US and that elsewhere. I, I don't know. I feel as though we're probably past the peak in terms of inflation growth, but it's, I'm, I'm not of the view that it, it gets back to target ranges anytime soon with that, unless there is a significantly nasty uh, event, <laughs> which is which is probably the only way out of it. And I would suspect that real yields are negative for a long time and that, frankly, that's the quiet part that no one wants to say out loud because we need to inflate the debt away. <laughs> we, just, we need to inflate the debt away and that's how we're going to do it. Interest rates are going to be below the real inflation rate and we'll do that for a long, long time. And so it's going to be, it's going to be a very interesting decade for, for investing. I Yeah, I agree with a lot of what you said. I have a probably more positive take though, which is nice that we're not just, just dooming it up. So I, I think, the, so part of what you're talking about is we won't get into the the friends you have in certain currencies. But it's part of this idea that the dollar, like people are abandoning the dollar because of the problems you say. And I don't think that those are invalid concerns, but I also don't think that's the, what is driving the majority of people pushing up yields at the moment. I think it's more mundane stuff, Like, but it's tied to what you're saying as well. So I think when the federal government spends way more money, like the amount of fiscal stimulus still happening is huge. Australia right now is stimulating as big as it's ever done except for during COVID. Like it's, it's massive stimulus and same in the US. So it's like, that's part of why we haven't had a recession in a lot of developed markets because governments have just kind of let loose the taps. It's something that, yeah, I think I, I wrote about it to um, our investors as governomics is kind of what I called it. And I think it's now becoming very common mainstream idea. It's just, we're going to have this ongoing f- fiscal spending. And I think that's probably a bigger driver. I think there'd be some people thinking more long-term, but I just think markets probably aren't as long-term maybe as you're giving them credit for of thinking of debt spirals and that kind of thing. I think it's A is the debt issuance, B is the economy is still going to keep going. So a lot of the reason yields were down or had not gone up as much as they should have, I think, was that people thought the economy was going into recession. And so therefore, you know, everything will be cut again. And I think we're not, people are now starting to say, actually, maybe it won't. So yields are going back up to reflect the economy could just keep going like this. And I do kind of agree with your last point. We've talked about this a fair bit on the pod, but this idea of like a financial repression thesis Russell Napier talks about. So you just have high rates higher than what we used to rates, I should say, for a long time and kind of keeping inflation slightly higher, but like still both high and that just kind of inflating the debt away. I do think that's happened, something that happens without anyone necessarily consciously thinking about it. I think it's just the way the incentives fall as well. I, I don't think it's as much like governments are so smart that they say, let's do this over the next 20 years as a big project together. I think it's just all the incentives start happening that when interest rates go up you know, too much, they start saying, actually, no, let's just keep them down a bit. And it just starts naturally happening. So, yeah, I think that, that I agree with that. That's kind of my base case thesis is that that idea of financial repression. So I guess a long story, like I agree with a lot of what you're saying. I just don't think it's as, I think it's probably more motivated by more short-term stuff for most people. 
I think if we did have people worrying about the stuff you're talking about, I think it would be much higher yields maybe put away. Like I think that would be, I think some of the stuff, it could lead there. And that I guess is what you're, what you're getting at is we're on an unsustainable path currently. And maybe one last dose of optimism, we could come back if, if we just have real growth, right? Like there is a chance that AI is the answer. If you think about what Russell was talking about two years ago, he said there's you know five ways to get out of this much debt. You can hyperinflation, blah, blah, blah. You can do financial repression, which is his one, or you can have a, a you know productivity boom. If AI is this productivity boom, we might just get lucky again and um, not have to worry about it. We could just have a lot higher GDP growth that kind of solves all the problems. So we'll see, man. We'll see. I'm I'm leaning more optimistic. I guess at least it's less of the near-term threat of like a recession and all the downsides that that could be. I, I see that being less likely than I would have thought a year ago. And I think the reason is... Right now, I don't think it's due to AI. I think it's just due to government spending. It's just massive government spending. That was much bigger than I expected it to be. It's very sticky. I didn't expect it to be big. Yeah. It's hard to stop it, right? Like people. Because everyone's in favor of it now. Like, if yeah. you, know, you know, like the, the zeitgeist is like, yeah, I like, I like the, the people want the government to solve problems. Cause we, yeah, there's a, a whether it's perception or not, there's a perception of a lot of problems in society that aren't being solved. And we're just calling on government to solve them. And government solves primarily by spending money currently. So, yeah. It just, tries to solve. <laughs> yeah, tries to solve. Exactly. I don't think it really solves, right? I, I yeah. think often it makes things worse. Yeah. So. Yeah. I, I just, I'll clarify a few points. I, I don't think the US dollar is not going away, right? I want to be clear on that. Not in the short to medium term or even if it is in the long term, it's a long, long term kind of thing. There is a Tina phenomena here. There's no alternative, right? It is mm. the most liquid, deep, trustworthy global currency in the world. It's, it's, it is very powerful. And we know that Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa all got together and said, hey, we should have our own kind of currency. And they all want it to be each other's, but none of them trust each other. And then they want some kind of commodity-backed, gold-backed thing. It's like, well, that kind of makes sense. But now I still need to like audit you to make sure that you've actually got the gold that you say you do or the you oil that you say you do. trust a bunch of other dictatorships. And, yeah. it's, just, it's just these massive trust implications. And so it's not like would these other parts of the world, which collectively are a very significant part of the global economy, would they prefer to have some alternative? Absolutely. But that, that, you know, they're kind of stuck with the US dollar. And, and I'm not even trying to say, oh, yeah, but Bitcoin is the least. There, there, there is not the market cap there to, to, to carry that weight at this point anyway. So that's I, even I'm going to say that that's not, the, that's not the immediate solution. The US dollar is going to be around for, for a while. But I do think that as each year sort of ticks by and we remain on this path, it becomes something that is sort of like, well, it, happen, it tends to happen in whenever there's reasonably aggressive inflationary periods. You've just got very big incentive to find a home for it. I need to store my wealth, right? Am I going to store it in this melting, like rapidly melting ice cube, increasingly fast melting ice cube? Or am I going to go buy New York real estate or London real estate? Or am I going to put it into the big tech giants? I actually think that's a big phenomenon as to why we've seen things that are ostensibly scary and interest rates rising very fastest price of interest rate increases ever. And yet asset classes that normally should be smashed are not being is like, well, there's, there's a lot of money sloshing around that needs a home. And it's just that bonds, which have forever been like the go-to for risk-free storage of wealth is just becoming, again, it's not an overnight thing. It's just less tenable. And so I feel as though the relative, the, the risk 
the premium on the risk-free rate isn't as much of a premium as it perhaps once had. And I'd, I'd be curious to see how that trends over time while ever the US remains on this very aggressive fiscal footing. Yeah. We've talked about this a few times now. I think it was only a couple of weeks ago, Claude was asking like, who else benefits from government spending, wasn't it? So yeah, we'll, we'll see how it plays out. Usually how it plays out, if you want to open the history books, usually plays out with war. I was going to say, yeah. That's how it <laughs> Trying to keep out. it positive, but so yeah, it's like scary, often the right? Case. Yeah, you get everything starts being more zero sum, and uh, yeah, it can often end up that way. You want to distract the the angry young males, get them <laughs> into the military, get them to point guns at your enemies, and you know, yeah. worked so well for so long. Yeah, I mean, I'm I think we're both pretty free market guys as well. So there's a lot of ways that it can just lead to malaise. Like there's a lot of problems with government getting too into things. Obviously, government can do things well. I don't think either of us are like super rabid against that, but it's just I don't think it should be the default. And I see a lot of intervention i see it i mean the more that i feel like the more that you understand about an area the more you realize all the flaws when the government intervenes in it because you can just see what they're doing wrong and the less you understand you're more like yeah do that thing make make oil free or whatever it is like yeah this uh we're in we're in weird territory. it's just it's very well intentioned a lot of this mm. stuff like so it's like what well, the government should do something the government should do something because there's a problem and they everyone recognizes it oh this is a problem over here we should we should do something i think the problem comes in thinking that you can do something directly when again you're dealing with sort of dynamic chaotic systems <laughs> which, yeah. which which you can't so i think my my philosophical ideological stance tends to be is that government's role should be to set proper incentive frameworks. That's what you should do. And then unleash the the human capital and potential to, to sort of solve that. Don't don't you even with the best of intentions, even with the smartest people, it's not that you'll never be able to do it because you're too dumb. It's not that anyone in that position wouldn't be able to do it because it's just too complex. You can't you can't orchestrate global economies or even nation state economies at that scale. It's it's literally impossible to do. So stop trying to do it because you're going to waste our money. And too many people go, oh, it's the government's money. It's our bloody money. It's like it's either tax or you're diluting us, right? It's ours either way. And that's is the the shake the fist at the sky thing for me. It's like absolutely get in there and set proper incentives, set the rules of the lay of the land, then step back a little bit because some things you just you've got no business being a part of. Yep, no I agree. And it makes it a really interesting playing field. It was literally two years ago, I think we first talked about this, but it's like you now need to think about government as an investor. Even if you're not playing, if you're not like, there's one angle where you're like, how can I benefit from this and which programs? But even if not, you just need to think about it like the landscape can shift so much now from changes in regulation. I think you need to be thinking about a lot. So yeah, something we'll keep keep chatting about. 100%. Cool. All right. Maybe a natural place. We'll wrap it there. Unless yep. you had anything else? Cool. Oh, there's Hit lots us. more to talk about. But, you know, <laughs> let's not. <laughs> All right. Hit us up on Twitter at Baby Giants Pod if you have any questions or thoughts. And yeah, look forward to our chatting in next week. Thanks. Thanks.